the day that I, um, my doctor told me that I had cancer, um, I, I got to say my first reaction, although I didn't say it out loud, was good. Um, immediately, my mind went to the fact that I had a life insurance policy that had not expired. And um, I know that sounds wicked, and it was, but I thought, hey, this could work out well. And, and I thought, uh, you know, finally, you know, my nest eggs could always be bigger, and I thought, this is my chance to set up my family the way I really wanted it to be set up. And, and for the first time in my life, I kind of felt financially successful at that moment of being told that I had stage four cancer. Um, you know, I, I, um, I told my doctor, you know, that I wasn't tied to this world. He was a friend of mine. And he said, well, I was thinking about Beth and your kids. And, and I had not thought about that. And, and that set me down a path that was very um, unexpected. I got to tell you that when, when I first thought about dying and the fact that my family could be set for life financially, it really made me feel good. And, and I, by the way, as I've told people this story before, most men, in my experience, have been able to relate to me almost completely. Women, on the other hand, without exception, are horrified by this thinking. Um, but that's, I went home, I thought it was great, and I was kind of excited about it, and I went home to tell my wife about the clean symmetry of dying while the life insurance policy was still in place, and, and she was, well, it would, didn't go well, let me just tell you that. <laughs> She said, do you really think that you, she held up her hands like pan scales, do you really think you are equal to a big pile of money? And honestly, I said, kind of, yeah, I do. You'd be set for life. You could travel. You could see grandchildren. You could, colleges would be paid for. It would be, you know, you'd, it'd be hard at first, but you'd get over it. She said, I would never get over it. You are devaluing yourself in, in front of us. I would never get over it. Well, I had a choice to make. Was I gonna, would I rather die with a pile of cash or live with God's provision, whatever it is? And that was a tough thing for me. I really had to think about it. As chemo started and I was in the hospital late at night, I thought about it all the time. Do I wanna live or do I wanna die? If I, if I live, if, if God would, were to heal me, I'd have to live on this retirement nest egg that I don't think is big enough. Could I have a good life? Could God make my life quality? Or would I rather just die with a wad of cash? And so, as I thought about it, I thought about the verse on your handout, which is what Jesus said right before he told the parable of the rich fool. It's Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, there I had it. God was revealing a false God that I had. You could see what was happening. It was the hand of God 
rescuing me from a false god that I didn't even recognize. I didn't think I had a problem with an idol of money, honestly, but I did because what I was thinking would happen is that I could take care of everything with a bunch of cash. I could take care of my family and my wife with money. Whenever you think, I just need this in order to have everything fall into place, you know you've got a false god. And I did. And I didn't know it until I was faced with life or death. So I would never have come to that on my own, but I had an idol of money and I was trusting in abundance. I really thought that if I left my future up to God and his provision, that my life would suffer. My quality of life would be worse. But I was forgetting what Jesus says. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. My loved ones needed me, not my abundance. Your loved ones need you. You, not your abundance. I would just caution all of us in the room, if we're like most of the men that I've talked to, we kind of think that if we could just provide for our families and give a good quality of life, my job is done. And I've done the right thing. And that's my primary job in life. It is not. That is a lie from hell. Men, if you ever think that you'd be better off dead than alive, and I know a lot of us have thought that. I certainly have. Stop yourself. That is a lie. Don't let yourself think that. I learned over the next three years what a lie that was. I can barely stand to think about it anymore, about the trauma to my family, the people that I loved. It's a false God. It's a lie. Less wealth doesn't mean a fruitless life. Less wealth does not mean a fruitless life. False gods will give you a fruitless life. What happened to me was this. Three years ago, this October, just about this week, next week, three years ago, I was diagnosed with that stage four lymphoma. So I went through chemotherapy from October through March of the next year, 2012. And then, and that was pretty successful. It was very successful. Um, but I needed a bone marrow transplant. And so my brother donated his stem cells and I got new bone marrow, new blood, new immune system and everything. And it worked out well. Um, but a few months went by and I had a very um, common complication, but in the worst possible form called graft versus host disease. My new immune system that I got from my brother didn't recognize my organs. They saw them as enemies and so started attacking my body, attacked my skin and my gut and um, my liver. Um, it was so bad, I got the worst possible case a person can get. And I started shedding my GI tract, the lining of my GI tract just started coming out. And um, I had a five to 10% chance of survival. That was right about the weekend of 4th of July in 2012. Um, I, I was so bad, I could not have any food or water for the next six weeks. I just was fed intravenously. Um, and, and people were dying around me on the, on the floor of the hospital who had the same thing. Uh, when I stayed in that hospital, in that bed, in that room, from 4th of July to Labor Day, never left, and somehow lived. But in the process, I was given lots of steroids, prednisone. If you've ever had that, you know what that's like. Um, 
I came out of the hospital with severe osteoporosis and fractured seven vertebrae in my back and two ribs. And uh, I was on heavy narcotics for pain, and that had a whole other set of ripple effects. Um, my pancreas was damaged, so I became a diabetic. Um, I got cataracts in both eyes, had to have both lenses replaced. Um, I had nausea 24-7 for probably the next year and a half. Um, and dozens of other issues. It was very hard. That was a really tough summer and then into the next year. I didn't know it, but I'd, I'd spend the next two years recovering from the treatment, not the cancer, the treatment that, that um, saved my life. And then I even got another flare-up of that same graft-versus-host at the beginning of this year, and it took about six months to carry that through. It wasn't as severe this time. So that was kind of the journey. But the part that I really want to tell you about is that time that summer when I was in the hospital and didn't know if I was going to live or die, I wondered, what did God want from me? How was I going to endure this suffering? And I, when I'm telling you suffering, man, I can't even put into words what kind of pain I was in and, um, and the associated uh, misery of that situation. But I kept wondering, what does God want from me now? How do I suffer? How in the world am I going to endure this? I knew I was looking at, if I survived, months and months in that same hospital bed. I asked for one of the pastors to help me, and I wrote an email to one of them, and he came and gave me a visit instead of answering the email. And we went over Romans 5, 3 through 5. If you could look at it at your handout, this is what changed me and helped me a great deal. Paul writes this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I just want to jump to the bottom line and tell you four big things I learned in this suffering for three years. First of all, in this passage that Paul wrote in Romans, it clearly implies that my pain and loss were God-ordained. They were designed, and your suffering is too. Your suffering, my suffering, was, is God-ordained and is designed with great purpose to change us. This truth saved my sanity and my, and my peace. Pain and suffering can originate from many sources, sin, evil, mistakes, errors from other people. Um, but our Lord is sovereign, and we as the redeemed in Christ can rest in this. No action can happen in our lives without his knowledge. He never gets distracted. My cancer didn't come when he was looking the other way. Um, no, no suffering in our lives is too strong for him to stop. Nothing. And nothing can happen contrary to his will. So in the end, it's all ordained by God. So if he brought it or allowed it into my life and into your life, we can trust the goodness of God. I knew that the Lord knows how to turn evil on its head and can turn suffering around for good. So the fact that my suffering was God-ordained helped a great deal. I started there. It was going to turn out right one way or the other. I did not have any assurance I would, be, I would be healed. Did not. But I knew that the suffering would make sense because this passage says so. And it says so in lots of other places. What Paul mentions in this 
is that all change and transformation is going to happen. And brothers, I'm going to tell you, it happened before my eyes. I went through this progression of, of learning how to endure and how, how my character was changed and how I got hope that I never had before. So the first thing I learned is that suffering is God-ordained. And the second thing I learned, and this is the big one, is that questions of when and how and why and what are going to be satisfied by the who. In other words, knowing Christ makes knowing the plan less important. I can't tell you what a big deal this is. The closer you and I draw to the Lord, the, the fear dissipates. If you struggle with fear, the answer is this, is God himself. I had lots of questions and no assurances about anything. I, am I going to live or am I going to die? Would I ever feel normal again? If so, when? And how will I endure this for months? You know, will I ever work again? And what am I going to do about money? I had to resign my job. These were legitimate questions, but, but no, I had no way of knowing the answers then, at that time. I just didn't. So what was I supposed to do? Blow off the questions? No. God promises that he himself will give us true peace. And so I went to the Lord and I said, I need you to show me this. Show me yourself. I need peace. I can't struggle with these questions. I need to know what I knew intellectually, that the Lord himself knows how to give us peace, but I, I needed to live it. So I did this. I started reading First and Second Samuel, The Life of David. Now, my intent was, I could, have, I could have read anything, but I wanted to know God. I wanted to be reminded of who he was. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a suffering situation where the fog is so hard and so bad that you kind of forget what God is like. That was me. I kind of forgot. I needed to be reminded of what he was like. Show me, Lord, who you are again. And so I started reading the scripture slowly. I read First and Second Samuel, a chapter a day, really slowly. And I kind of wondered back in those hard days, gosh, does, does God intervene anymore? Or, or am I just supposed to remember the God of history and the God of the Bible? And does he intervene? Lord, do you intervene? Will you help me? And I, I read the scripture looking for whether God intervenes or not. And in that life of David, you may not have known this, but David, remember in his life, he ran from Saul. He was persecuted by Saul. He ran and hid in the wilderness from Saul for 10 years. 10 years. Well, that meant something to me because I couldn't see an end to my suffering. And I thought, okay, David did it for 10 years. And did God intervene in his life? I looked with all my might. I looked. And I got my red pen out and I started underlining places where God intervened in David's life. And the fact that David had lots of trouble, lots of trouble, was encouraging to me because I had trouble. David was anointed the next king and he still had trouble. God brought him tons of it. And David started changing and he learned endurance, his character changed, and he had hope. The same things that Paul talks about, those things happened to David. So I underlined them as I went, slowly. And, I, and I, I also underlined where God intervened, but I also underlined his character traits. Remember, I kind of forgot what he was like. 
And so every time I saw an attribute of God, I underlined that. Pretty soon, my Bible was filled with red marks, and I could just kind of go through quickly. If I needed to be reminded of what it was like, just look at the red marks. And I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're like that. Yes, Lord, you're like this. And I got to say that um, devotionals, as good as they are, aren't real good in this kind of point in your life. The Scripture is. You don't need a little pump of inspiration. You need to go face-to-face with the Lord and learn who He is again. And that's what I did. I tell you, it changed everything. And I started noticing, as I looked at God, I saw Him face-to-face. And I was very assured. All of a sudden, I knew this Lord. And because I knew Him this well, I did not need to know the plan. I know that sounds hard to believe, but... When I had the Bible in front of me, when I had the Lord in front of me, I, I noticed he is 100% accurate. He never makes a mistake. He's got unlimited power. He's super gentle. He's got wisdom that's deeper than anything I know. And he's got great patience for you and me. And, and he loves me. When I got face-to-face with that, I'm telling you, I did not need to know the plan. I did not need to know why this happened. I did not need to know when it's going to be over. I, I knew him. Man, that is the strongest thing I can tell you. When you come face to face with the Lord, when you read about him in his word, you will get changed by his magnificence. That may seem ethereal. It is not. It's what the Bible has always taught. When you get close to him, you will have a peace that you've never had before. I tell you, I, the fact that I'm healed now is not the main great news. It was the fact that God changed me is the great news. I had peace. I was no longer struggling with all these other questions about money and about about all the next steps. I knew him because I knew him so well and he was so trustworthy and so good, I could relax. I knew the plan would be good and I would know it when he revealed it to me. That was a huge way to get through the suffering. Now, Job learned the same thing. When Job went through his trial, his main question was why. That was his only question. Why is this happening? It made no sense to him. If you read the book of Job, it's all about why, 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 why. Tell me, tell me, tell me. And in the end, when the Lord did answer him, you notice the Lord did not answer his question of why. The Lord told Job who he was. Remember that? He, gave, he went through a litany of where were you when I laid out the foundation of the earth and then went through so many different examples of who he was, how big he was, how strong he was, how eternal he was. And at the end, Job didn't have to ask why. He no longer had that question. That's the same thing that happened to me. When I got face to face with him, I did not insist on knowing when, why, how. I had him. Man, that is the way to have peace, is to know him. When, when God promises he'll do that for us, that's what he means. And I didn't know that until I went through this. God never answered Job's question of why. God gave Job himself, and Job was satisfied. The same thing happened to Moses. The same thing happened to Joshua, David, the apostle Peter, the apostle Paul. It happens to lots of people. When they get right in front of him, they don't ask those questions anymore. They're not relevant anymore. If you're kind of forgetting who God is and you need a fresh word, a reminder of who he is, 
Can I just suggest a few things? Do what I did. Read the Bible slowly. You might want to start with Psalm 86. Psalm 86. David wrote that, and it's just about the attributes of God. You might want to just read that for the rest of the week, over and over, slowly, with a pen, and underline those attributes. You will be amazed at how wonderful your Lord is. You'll be reminded. You know, you can do the same thing with Psalm 73. You can also read about the, the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and wandering in the desert. You can read that real slowly. You can read the life of David like I did, or you can read the life of Joseph. That's another good one. You'll see what the Lord is like. You'll be reminded of what he's like. The book of Acts, all those interventions. All right, so the first thing was God ordains our suffering. The second thing is that the who, why, what, where stuff is answered by the who, who God is. And then the third thing I learned about was yielding. I know that a lot of people fight cancer by fighting. I did not have that, that sensation from the Lord. I felt like I needed to yield. If my suffering came by the hand of God and it was ordained and had great purpose, then I wasn't going to fight him. I was going to yield more and more. And the more I changed would be a function of how much I yielded. This verse from Paul about suffering produces um, endurance and and character and hope is not a verse that looks like Paul's asking us to fight. He's asking us to yield. It's, it's a recipe for being transformed. God is wanting to change us. It's a recipe for getting out of the way so God can remake us into men with endurance and character and hope. We don't do that ourselves. We just don't. The Lord brings suffering so we can do what we can't do ourselves. And then we get hope. Verse 5 in that verse says that God's love has been poured into our hearts. When that pastor visited me in the hospital, he said, Beth and Jay, he was talking to my wife and me, he said, start looking for ways that the Lord is pouring his love into your heart. I started looking. It was all over the place. I got all sorts of insight from the Word of God at the right time. I got personal encouragement at the right time. Money came at the right time. Help at home came at the right time. Our children flourished while I was down for three years. And my wife needed all sorts of help, and it came. I tell you, it's the living relationship with Christ. He is actively working today. Look for ways that the Lord is pouring his love into your heart. It is happening. And look at the scripture because it's happening there all the time. You'll be reminded of how active he is. And it's the hope that God promised, promised as we suffer. And, and finally, the fourth thing was that I stopped being cynical. Because I was face-to-face -face with the Lord and I knew him now, I was reminded of who he was, I didn't have to be cynical. I, I used to kind of, when I prayed, I used to kind of assume the worst about God, like, Really, like the children of Israel when they wandered in the Sinai, when they grumbled against the Lord, God hated it, not because they were crying out. God hated it because those Israelites really doubted that God cared about them. For they, they assumed he didn't notice, that he didn't care, that he wasn't able to intervene, and he didn't want to intervene. It was general doubt and suspicion. The Lord hates that. 
you could hear his broken heart in, the, in Numbers, if you want to read Numbers 14. The Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Men, for those of us in our 50s or older, have you noticed that, that the primary things of life kind of get threatened in your 50s, your health, your money, your career? And I can't tell you how many men I've talked to in the last three years that feel like pseudo-losers because some of those areas have been threatened. Don't repeat the error of the, of the Israelites. Don't forget to connect the dots of God's grace in your life. Connect the dots of God's grace in your life. You are not a loser. You've got a holy history that's marvelous. I had to do that all over again. The Lord has been, has been gracious. There's no reason to be cynical. I can have anticipation, but I will not anymore put God through that grumbling anymore. I am no longer a cynic. I don't know what he's going to do. I've got no assurances, but I do have anticipation that God knows what he's doing in suffering. He does good. I have two minutes, so I'm going to tell you one last thing. When my doctor told me that I had cancer, um, another reason that I didn't tell you about the reason I wanted to die uh, is because really down in my heart, I wasn't really sure my wife loved me. She did, but I just kind of didn't sense it. I wish she was a lot more affectionate. Um, there's all sorts of things I wish she would do that she didn't. And I always kind of wondered. And, I, and it, it came to me because I grew up in a, in a family where my parents did not affirm me. And so I just always had this big hole in my heart. And I hoped when I got married that she would love me like that. And, of course, she's not like God, so she couldn't. So I always had this hole in my heart walking around of feeling kind of unloved. And I thought it would be better to die because I didn't think I could go another 20 or 30 years carrying this hole anymore. So um, I wanted to be loved. Well, um, just the short version is that um, I, before I got cancer, I kept doing all sorts of things to try to make her love me. I was the funny guy. I was the strong, silent guy. I was the good career man. I was the servant at home. I tried all that stuff. There wasn't really any difference in her reaction. Um, and so when I got sick, um, I really started to fall apart physically. I became as hideous as a person can be. You know, I lost 30 pounds, I, you know, blew up from steroids, I lost all my hair, I was really weak, I couldn't climb stairs, it was ridiculous. And, and what I started noticing, though, was that Beth, I would, before I got sick, I always kind of wondered, does my wife ever think about me during the day? Does she? Well, when I got sick, I started noticing, my wife was thinking about me all the time. She was 12 steps ahead every minute. And I started realizing, I think she's kind of always been like that, but I never noticed it. And, and then one night in particular, I was getting ready for bed. She was already in her bed reading a magazine. And I climbed, I, we had those, one of those four-poster beds that's kind of high, and I could barely get up into the bed. So I just hauled my bag of bones up there, got under the covers, just wretched looking, and she 
put her magazine down, and she rolled over and faced me, and she put her cheek right up against my cheek, and she said, I love you so much. You're the bravest man I know. Is there anything better you could hear from your wife? She never had to say that again, although she did. But it hit me at my worst, at my ugliest. That's, I had nothing to offer. My wife loved me, thought I was the bravest man she knew. It clicked. Man, this cancer was no tragedy. I no longer have a hold in my heart. I know how to endure. I've got a new character. I know my Lord. I don't have to know the plan. There is no better peace than that. And it came from suffering. Paul knew what he was talking about. Your suffering is God coming to you to do things for you that you could never do yourself. I had false gods. They were taken care of. You do too. Let the Lord have his way with you. Embrace the suffering. It is going to work out well. If you are a lover of Christ, he knows exactly what he's doing and will put his finger right on that spot in your life where you cannot help yourself. That's what he's here for. Amen.